G'day and welcome to Occupied, your fortnightly fix for all things occupational therapy and occupation. Today, I got to have a chat with Dr. Jessie Wilson from Western University in Canada about her perspectives on the profession and her PhD research into occupation-based interventions with young adults with autism. So you had a listen? I did. It was so good. And yeah, I listened to the Rocket OT. Well, I listened to your like introduction and then I listened to the Rocket OT. And uh, yeah, it was awesome. It was really good. It was really good. You guys like totally gelled. I think it would be such a good example, like you said, to show the students about how communication can build. You know, you start to get to know each other the first little bit. You know, you're paraphrasing and asking some, you know, prompting for some more depth in in answers, but then it just sort of took off. Yeah, and that's how most of them do, usually. Mm -hmm. But that's the sort of thing they don't really, they don't really get to see it until it's their turn kind of thing. There's no, no one's ever got any examples of that kind of stuff recorded, because quite often, especially with clients anyway, you just can't record it, so. Yeah. Makes it difficult. Yeah, it was it was really good. It's funny when Simone was talking about like her background and her career path, like certain things that she did. <clears throat> it's like exactly the same, right? The background of human kinetics. I came from kinesiology and then we both worked in mental health, you know, it was the first. We both would never work in a hospital situation, same thing. <laughs> yeah, it was funny. I was like, Oh my gosh, we're like pediatric soulmates. Like twins. Yeah, it was good. It was really good. It'll be really good, too, because I'm not as aware of a lot of the self-regulation literature. And I had two students that were really working in that space with Marymount and having um, Family Crisis and Resource Center. And a lot of it was around self-regulation and how to work with parents and kids in this really complex family environment. So I'll have to, I love her infographics and stuff as well. So I'll have to be, I'll use her stuff this year when I teach the pediatric um, intensive and um, that and maybe get connected to see if she wants to maybe have a bit of a conversation if she's not trekking to Peru or somewhere exciting versus me sitting at a desk. (laughs) (laughs) I can almost guarantee that she'll be more than happy to have a chat. Yeah. Well, I think I think she would bring so much to the conversation and I think her explanations are so clear and occupation based. I think it'll just be um a great a great resource. Um so yeah. Yeah. And that's what I mean that's, that's what I said to her. I'm like I know absolutely nothing about pediatric OT, but as soon as I look at that infographic, I'm like I know exactly what that is. Yeah, which is what we should all be doing, no matter what field of practice we're in, really. Anything we're doing, we should all connect with, right? But, I know, yeah. it should all look similar. Yeah. don't know why <laughs> we insist on making things hard. <laughs> we just, we like a challenge. Yeah, I guess so. Usually, guess the- so. We like to feel important in specific things. So, yeah, I love many of the aha moments. I had uh, messaged you while I was listening to it and stuff around you know, examples from practice. Great point. Never thought about that before, but very true. Um, Specialization, which has always drove me crazy because this feeling probably of an sort of inadequacy around not having all these different certifications. 
And I feel like pediatric OTs love additional certifications. Like that's like their total jam, right? DIR floor time, early intervention based stuff, like around like early start Denver model. ABA is really big here in Canada now. Yep. Um, yeah. So it's just funny. Yeah. It's, I think mental health is pretty similar in that way. And that the one thing a few years ago, anyway, that used to give me the shits was that OTs never seemed to realize like that we could do anything straight out of the box and that we needed to get all these extra qualifications after we'd finished. And I'm like, well, if you need to do all these extra trainings, why did you just spend four years at uni or three years at uni, depending on where you are? Like, what what was the point? Yeah, I think it's a good, it's a good one. And I love the idea. Yeah, it's a tool, but it shouldn't define necessarily what your practice is and other professionals do the same thing like I was talking with an with um I believe her background is actually uh social work but she's a play therapist but she mm-hmm. bases her whole practice around relationship like focus therapy like around you know the circle of security and positive parenting and mindfulness and that's like her jam Yep. So whenever she walks into a situation, that's the only lens that she views that that problem or that challenge through, um, which is somewhat limiting. You know what I mean? At that same time, so and that's the same. Like, because I'm currently rewriting a mental health subject, a lot of content anyway, mm-hmm. and there's stuff in there. I mean, it, it's been pieced together over quite a few years, but there's stuff in there that. I've never done and there's like uh, examples of different trainings and stuff that I haven't done and you know I've worked in that field for I worked in that field for a decade and still never I mean I was very well aware of it things like CBT I'm like I'm aware of it and I know it's out there never done the training and never felt like I missed anything like yeah there probably is a place for it my practice isn't one of them but I'm yeah. sure I'm sure there are like anything I'm sure there are people that benefit from it and I'm sure there are people that you know really enjoy it. I was quite happy and quite successful in just using my occupational therapy toolkit and didn't really there's a few things I expanded out but mainly within that OT toolkit things like car wire and that kind of stuff but I never felt the need that I really needed to get into psychotherapies in order to be a, a competent mental health OT. And I've, I've had slightly heated discussions with some therapists about that because they had a, the, pretty much the exact opposite view in that, how can you be a competent therapist if you don't have this skill set? And I'm like, well, that all right so far. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And it's interesting because I, I can see the other sort, side of the coin, especially like I don't want to speak for the other professionals that have other sort of degrees and stuff, but I can see the pressures in order to be sort of um, aligning with other models of practice or having the newest approach or having more education in this area. But I think at the expense of, of what, especially if that approach doesn't necessarily align with an occupation-based perspective like what are you sacrificing then in terms of getting this additional training you know what I mean like how are you using it do you use it purely like ABA or do you adapt some of the approaches to it or the fundamental techniques to apply to your practice Mm. or do you follow a recipe card in order to provide an intervention the way that it's supposed to be 
delivered. You know, it's um. Anyways, it's it's an interesting. But I, I guess in a way too, like that's the oh, I'm going to call like extras that I've added to my sort of toolkit. It's been the ones that I can integrate well with my occupational toolkit. Like if it's completely standalone, yeah, you can do it, but it it doesn't. One of the issues I have is when people go, yeah, yeah, this is OT. When they, they do CBT, yep, fine, do a CBD course. You can deliver CBT, not an issue at all. But when you start promoting it as an OT therapy is when I have an issue. I'm like, I have no issue with CBT at all, but it's mm. not OT. Yeah. Um, there are some things, uh, namely the things that I use, like uh, solution-focused brief intervention. Originally comes from social work, but I can use it extremely well in an occupation-based framework. So I do it that way. It might actually be different to how a social worker may do it because they don't have my underpinnings. So I guess when I'm looking at these sort of extra skill sets, and I always wonder when people just, because you can go and just study, you know, psychotherapy. I'm like, okay, that's cool. You get knowledge around these different therapies and different assessments, but what's your underpinnings? Like what are you building this house on? Whereas yeah. like I'm and, and I think that's where a lot of OTs fall down is that they don't they're not confident enough in their underpinnings to be able to integrate these extras on top of it. Yeah. So yeah, they end right. up falling into the trap of like and you may they may deliver say for say for example, say like the solution focus. They may if without if they're not confident in their occupational underpinnings and being able to integrate that into them, they may deliver it the same as a social worker do does which would be Mm -hmm. very different to how I do it. Exactly. Yeah, and that's where that sort of idea about losing your identity and figuring out where you fit, especially in an interdisciplinary team, if you're using the same approaches. I think that one of the the big things um, that I guess you need need to be mindful of is like where how how are you how are you different i i just remember this which was so clear a colleague of mine um we were talking about words to describe an ot like a graduate like adjectives what describes them and everybody was you know throwing out words you know professionalism ethical you know client centered uh, and and she turned to me and she said uh because we were really pushing the word occupation like and and she was pushing it like she's incredibly articulate and was like I want someone who has occupation at the core of everything they do perfect sense right and we were talking about this I said I want a graduate who loves to do like it sounds so simple right like the idea of I want someone who does something Mm -hmm. like doesn't refer all the time to some another professional like a physio or a speechy or a social worker actually looks at doing something together with in collaboration but the adjective she goes those could be any professional I want a accountant who is ethical self-directed learner who is um, professional I want a doctor who is ethical who is who is you know it's it it doesn't define you know 
and OT, these, these adjectives could be anybody. And I thought it was a really good way because not only in describing what we do, but who we are, if the word occupation isn't in there, well then who are we? Like what, what is the, a hundred percent. It was just that moment of clarity. I was like, you know, Lily, it was like a perfect way to describe it. You know, she just sort of said it was sitting around a table, you know, and pages and pages of adjectives, which are all valuable, which are all important and relevant to an OT. But when occupation isn't in there, well, you just are we talk about physio? Yeah. Or we talk- <laughs> yeah. Anyways, that was the, uh, one of those moments, right? Where you're like, that makes complete sense. Yeah. So simple. And I, I used to I used to run this activity with uh, when I did what was that one? I used to do an off base practice module for the fourth years. I can't remember. I think I did it with third years as well. Um, but one of the like very first things I used to bring up, and I probably have to stop it now because I've done it too many times and I'm probably used to it, was I used to put up half of the definition of a physio from New Zealand physio. Year in fourth year because yeah. we taught it the very first when you first started there, Brock. I had you come in and remember you got in a bit of trouble from a hand therapist about a few things, which was funny because uh, we were talking about justifying your role. Remember, justifying your role as an occupational therapist by the end alone, which is an interesting concept because you could justify what you do because you could always connect it to can toilet independently or can go to the movies or can knit whatever it ends up being. And that's always been my argument. Similar to what you were just saying, like you can justify anything. Like technically a pharmacist, if they're giving you a medication to help you get over a cold, there's an occupational (laughs) end to to that. Like they want you to get back to doing what you were doing. Whether you, you know, they want you to get back to doing what you want and need to do. I'm like, oh, that sounds familiar. But you're a pharmacist. So that's, (laughs) yeah. That's the exact workshop I'm thinking of. But yeah, so I used to have this activity where I'd put up the definition. It's it's off. I think it's the definition of physio based on, I think it's New Zealand physiotherapy. And if you read it, I don't know. The the activity was I didn't actually tell them where it came from. And I just asked if it sounded like a fairly reasonable definition of an OT. And it mentioned function and it mentioned probably holistic healthcare. I can't remember the exact definition now. And then, you know, I would usually get at least, you know, 80, 90% of the class would be like, yeah, you know, it sounds pretty reasonable. It's not perfect, but it sounds reasonable until I showed them where it came from. And then there was quite, you know, a lot of bewilderment. I know. I don't understand what happened. And then I'd go off on a rant about why I don't like the word function. Mm. <laughs> I think that's a, it's funny too, because I don't know if you've read the blog of, it's called the, um, I think it's called the critical physio and he's a physiotherapist. He's written some stuff too as well. Gosh, if I can't remember his name, but anyways, it's called the critical physio and he talks about adopting this language of holistic practice and, you know, this idea of looking at the whole person and and understanding their, their wants and their needs. And he says, no, 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 no. I'm a physio and I'm not holistic. When I can look at a physiotherapy journal and find 447 articles solely talking about the ACL ligament in the knee, 
that's not holistic. So he's like, stop trying to say that we are holistic and care about the whole when we don't. That's not what we do. There's other professionals that do that. So it's really funny. He does such a he he does a really good blog and is very critical about the profession and about, you know, how they fit within the scope of things, which is, yeah, very clever. He does a he does a good a good job of that. And I thought it was it was really good to read because he says, you know, I'm not holistic. You know, like that's not what I do. I look at the knee, I look at the arm, I look at the foot, I I and I make it better as yeah. best as I can. <laughs> that's what I do. And it's it's interesting because I wonder, like, there's there's a lot of professions that are, especially when like with the ICF and that sort of thing coming out, that are trying to adopt this holistic language or this this holistic framework to what they do. And I wonder whether other professions are in the same boat as us, in a way in that they're essentially becoming more generic by doing that. Because I think OT, OT looked at that ICF framework and went, yeah, okay, this is what we do anyway. Should be on paper, probably isn't in reality. But I wonder how many other professions went, oh, yeah, we're holistic. We look at other things other than what we're just, just what we're meant to be looking at. Like I know I've heard that exercise physiologists are now going to be looking at things like mental health. I'm like, I don't even know how that's going to work. Uh, I know like speeches, speeches often look at communication, not just the actual words, but they'll look at communication. So there's a a large social aspect to that now where traditionally I would assume there probably wasn't like way back in the day. Yeah. Like there's a lot of professions that are pushing for that holistic healthcare, but I think he raises the the physio guy raises a valid point in that well is there still a place for professions that aren't? Yeah. Well, I think yeah, and I think there is. I think I think the authenticity and the ability to reflect on what your role is and what your purpose is and being confident with that purpose is ninety nine point nine percent of the battle. Don't try to be something that you're not, you know, and I think we say that to students. I know I do quite a bit because we, we often in occupational therapy, both within Canada and with, Austra- and with Australia, we get many students that come into the program that may have been thinking about OT through a different lens or had not gotten into perhaps the program. Not everybody, but there there's always a majority, no matter where you're at, you know, that maybe wanted to be a physio and didn't have the, the grades to get in or maybe are looking at upping their GPA perhaps for med school or something along those lines, you know, getting more experience in healthcare, that sort of thing. But, you know, that's one of the major things in that foundations course is being able to define what is the profession to lay that solid foundation because otherwise you have a mixed mash of people's perceptions of what OT is or who they would like to be versus what the profession actually is, which is, you know, always a challenge. And, uh, yeah. And between the Canada and Australia, you know, challenge, it's, it's the same, the same challenge, whether it's within four years or whether it's within two years. However, the beauty of four years is you have four years to develop an understanding of what occupation is and occupational therapy. Within a master's degree, you have two years, four years condensed into two. It's challenging. It would be, and I've, I've often wondered how people do it because it's taken me 10 years to get in. 
<laughs> so, oh, I know. <laughs> so I, I, know I don't know how people can do seeds. it in two. Yeah, I mean, you hope to plant those seeds early and you rely very heavily on those strong foundation subjects, which, you know, that, that introduction to, to occupational therapy and occupation, you try to weave it throughout everything you do. Um, but it is, it's, it's very hard, especially within Canada too, where some universities have entrance requirements in terms of a, of a human kinetics or a health sciences background, but some universities do not require those, um, courses, especially if they are a school that is quite, um, forward thinking in occupational science because of wanting to accept professionals in from a variety of backgrounds, you know, so you might have students that are coming in with quite high marks in uh, geography and look at, you know, because they could connect it. There's a wonderful researcher, Susan um, Hout, who's from UBC, who is a geographer who looks at human um, migration and immigration and occupational justice issues around that. Uh, you might have somebody that comes in with music or graphic arts. Well, when you're talking about occupation, they could maybe align with understanding what occupation is. But then when you get to the other things in terms of human development and anatomy and neuroanatomy and conditions, that's where uh, a real challenge happens as well. So it's it's um, yeah, it's it's an interesting way of thinking about it. The diversity is unique and, and wonderful, especially in the field of occupation and occupational science, yet teaching and condensing a lot of information down into two years that ranges from developmental milestones through to, you know, older age, palliative care and energy conservation starts. I don't know everything in between that. Mm, yep. It's, it's, uh, it's really hard to teach what is occupation within a two year span, but that's just. And I think the two years, I reckon would be okay if it was just like you're saying, like just for say an occupational science, if you could do a master's in occupational science, I think you could probably do that really well in two years, especially seeing it would be about integrating prior experience and prior learning into that sort of occupational science field. Uh, but then taking all that knowledge and trying to apply it into a therapy modality, I, I don't know. I, I would just, I would assume that there would be quite a bit of on the job learning once you'd completed that master's because. I think trying to cram that much information into two years would be really difficult, plus placements and stuff, but it would be really difficult. Yeah. yeah, definitely, definitely. And I think that the movement towards hopefully, at like, I mean, ideally at the master's level, you've developed much more self-directed learning, you know, so you've developed a learner who is engaged in what they're learning and does, and the expectation is that you will seek knowledge outside of the classroom walls, per se. So... I mean, a lot of it in terms of offering additional resources um, to enhance your learning or to think about other ways that you might be able to boost yourself in certain areas. Because, you know, not to say that the geographers or the, you know, the graphic artists or the musicians or the, you know, 
critical feminist perspectives that are brought in are less valuable. They're incredibly um, useful, especially in the practice of occupational science or occupational therapy. But if they have to recognize areas of potential weakness, I guess, or a potential growth in terms of perhaps the neuroanatomy that a human kinetic student might be very well versed in and seeking out opportunities to expand their learning or catch up in those specific areas. But in order to do that, you have to be willing to be able to be critical of your knowledge of what you have, what you don't have. You have to be self-directed in seeking out opportunities for potential growth and and learning um, and then do it, you know, like actually do it outside the classroom walls, um, which is which is also a challenge because students are pressed for time. You know, I think that, you know, every student comes with their own life and background and history and. I know, you know, in Australia, some of the students, you know, were first in family to come to school or they had other expectations of families and caregiving roles outside of the classroom, often coming from, you know, having to carry a full time job in addition to going to classes and things like that, that that can be a real stress, you know, in terms of finding out those opportunities. And that's reflective of some of our, you know, Canadian students as well. Some of them have families, you know, some of them, you know, are working uh, jobs in order to pay for university. And I guess it's just part of the part of the thing, the lifestyle that you have to, you know, live during that certain period of time to hopefully benefit and become wonderful OTs. But yeah, Hopefully, that's the that's the goal, I guess, yeah. in the end. And I think yeah. that's something I was talking to someone about the other day is that I find OTs to be quite resistant to taking information from outside of the profession and bringing it in. Um, probably similar to what we we're talking about before earlier with uh, things like CBT, and that yeah, we'll take that. For example, with that, we'll take information. But it kind of stays outside the profession. It's it's a standalone kind of thing. We're, we're very resistant to taking it or learning something from outside of our profession and bringing it in and integrating it into what we know. And I was just as you were saying um, that before about the students, I was thinking about how a lot of the uh, not revelations, but a lot of the stuff I've been personally interested in and learning recently has been from like evolutionary biology which is mm. you know got on terms of occupational therapy not a lot to do with say an undergrad course but me even in reading a lot of that kind of materials i'm still looking at it through an occupational lens i don't know can't help it that's just what happens yeah. and going well how does these various different theories, whatever I was reading at the time, how does this fit with occupation? How does this fit with uh, doing being becoming? How does this fit with PEO? How does it fit with whatever it is? Um, yeah. And it's something, yeah, there's a lot of stuff out there that I'm not overly interested in exploring outside of the profession. There's you know thousands of different courses, professions, research streams, that kind of thing. But I think there's a lot that we can learn from 
areas that are so broad that we probably wouldn't even consider them. Outside of health, even. Like I said, I'm yeah. learning a lot from evolutionary biology. Uh, right. I just, OTs, I don't know. We just seem to like reinventing the wheel. <laughs> like, yeah, unless it's come from OT, we don't care. Yeah, and I, it's a good, it's an interesting point, too, because there are so many relevant things that apply. And I, I like finding those connections. I find those connections exciting when you can see them within other um, areas of research or other forms of, of literature or something like that. Because uh, I was teaching a course in leadership, and leadership is not an area that I feel completely confident in at all. Um, so I contacted um, Dan to, to get some, because leadership is his gym. Like that's what, you know, he did it and feels very confident in that area and has taught leadership for a number of years. So in terms of exchanging resources back and forth, we were talking about what, you know, some key things to start reading about and leadership theory and, uh, how that connects to occupational therapy, I think is a potential area that I can see exploding over the next little while. There's an OT that I know that works in mental health and has worked in mental health, forensic mental health for a very long time and is a leader in our field and is a huge supporter of the program um, at Western and stuff now. And he, al he always has been. And he wrote an interesting article looking at leadership and how occupational therapists assume often the role of a leadership. Uh, for, you know, people see leadership qualities within us, but we often don't recognize where they come from, how they come about, where they develop from, and often how to take this sort of leadership role on, often sort of going at it blind, but yet seeing the potential for the profession in leadership roles. And it was really interesting reading some of the leadership literature, not necessarily OT, because there's very little actually in leadership in OT. Um, and the connections between many of our sort of core values and uh, understandings of of people, of doing, of belonging, of connecting with with others, and how that can really help enable uh, a leader, uh, whether it's servant or charismatic, to take on um, that leadership role. So I, I like seeing those connections within other literature. It's exciting. It makes you feel, you know. A bit valuable. It's kind of it's kind of nice to kind of go. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. That, that actually fits. That, yeah, that I could see using. I see how it aligns. But then again, going back to what you had said earlier, you have to have that strong foundation of what is occupation, what is occupational therapy, what are our models, our occupation focused models, how, what are our visions, values, principles of, of OT in order to see those connections. Otherwise, you become additive mm. versus sort of, I don't know, for lack of a better word, like summative, like it's sort of absorbed in and becoming a part versus adding on top and mm. sort of Just adding layers. Yeah, with these with these many things. But I think the, I remember kind of years ago, uh, a friend of mine showed me a video. It was on again on leadership. Uh, showed me a video called "The First Follower," uh, and it was a completely unrelated to to uh, leadership itself. The video itself, but they used it as an example of leadership. But it was a dude dancing at a like music festival, and he looked like he was having a good time. Uh, but he was dancing on his own, and it was essentially looking at 
he just needed that first follower. Essentially, he was dancing on his own for ages, and then one person joined him, and then it was like critical mass, and all these people started joining him. And the friend who showed it to me is, is an OT, uh, and it kind of got me thinking. This was ages ago. I was actually writing a presentation or something on leadership when she showed me, but it got me thinking about how important that first follower and mm. is to, I guess, making progress or making change. And it kind of got me thinking about, again, as most things tend to do, occupation as means and how I was working with my clients and the fact that I've always encoded, whenever I have students, one of the things that they're often worried about is doing stuff with the the people they work with. And I'm like, that video for me highlighted exactly why we need to be doing as opposed to just directing people what they should be doing because not having that sort of support and not having that first follower is a big barrier for a lot of people to take that that next step and actually make something a more permanent change. Whereas if they've got the support of their therapist and you're doing it with them, mm-hmm. they're going to integrate into whatever community group or support network it is a lot faster, a lot easier. And it feels good for you as well. <laughs> like You're well, not I just know. sitting I in know. an office. It almost seems like a bit of a, a cheat, right? Like I, I remember talking with Simone there and saying, you know, this is the best job in the world. I get to kick a footy around with a young guy who just wants to hang out. And I get, and I, I feel the exact same way, you know, a lot of times. Like I get to hang out and be a part of people's lives and do things with them. And it's a, it is, it's almost that reciprocal relationship of doing. And that time and time again, I couldn't have said it better in terms of doing with people comes up in my life I guess academically but also career-wise um you know uh as an OT over over and over again like I was with students teaching we were talking about occupation as a means and an end and we were talking about your Rome group and a lot of the research around that and so we brought we brought out activities to do. And one of them was talking about, you know, it was something it was even easy. It was it was talking about fiber arts. And it's ridiculous because, you know, it was it was crocheting, but just doing something different and stepping outside your comfort zone, which is something that I enjoy. So I was talking about the value of that occupation for me, how much I love it beyond just the fact of, you know, keeping my hands busy while I'm watching sports with my husband, you know what I mean, that I don't want to watch necessarily, but producing something that I then give to a loved one, to somebody whom which I care for means a lot to me. So we were talking about that and we just put close the laptops, put down the pen and paper, connect with your neighbor and ask what they like to do. Then try this activity, which is totally outside many of their comfort zones. None of them, well, I think one maybe had crocheted or knitted before with their nan or something like that and try it and do it. And it was amazing. The mood of the room lifted, people were laughing People had to take risks. 
people that might have thought this is odd. I don't want to do this. I'm not creative. I don't know how to even begin or sometimes men in the room that might think this is silly. I'm not, you know, doing this. This is not something that, you know, I find meaningful. But talking about the importance of taking that risk and doing something your client might enjoy can bring you together in a in a very strong therapeutic relationship and open your eyes to the meaning and the importance of occupation to to everybody. But you have to actually do it. You can't just talk about doing it. You need to actually do it. And so whether it's that or doing it with clients, you know, like going out into the community, working in mental health, you know, signing them up for a gym membership and taking them to their first fitness class, or whether it's in research. I mean, the my PhD, one of the main comments from the young men that I had worked with was really appreciating the doing. So not just talking about social skills, not just talking about making a sandwich or making their girlfriend a dinner, actually doing it. And they said that was often the very first time with an OT, they actually carried out doing it. They had talked about it and made social stories about it or said, you know, this is what you should do, you know, if you have your girlfriend over for dinner, but never actually carried out that occupation. And I think that's when I used to work in acute, that was one of the main reasons why I got rid of a lot of the psychoeducation groups. Because I'm like, we're talking about why would I, why am I talking about it? Why can't I take people to do things? Mm-hmm. Like sitting in a room for a whole week playing kindergarten teacher isn't what I signed up for. Like I'm here to may help people do things so i'm going to do them with them whether that's yeah. you know you learn budgeting by budgeting you don't learn budgeting <laughs> by sitting in a room with a template and writing it all out and that kind of stuff like you learn budgeting by okay what are you saving for what do you need to pay blah 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 let's actually do it you know you learn <laughs> you learn things like anxiety management by managing anxiety <laughs> it sounds really stupid but that's what it is. Yeah, I know. You actually have because you don't see the the holes and what you're able to do or what you're not able to do until you actually do it. And, you know, I think I always bring back the example, especially in pediatrics, because as uh, Simone was saying, too, sometimes our practice can turn into um, very focused on components. And I mean, that could do a variety of rationale around that could be the the safety net of the therapist. That's their jam, you know, fine motor skills. It could also be the policies in which you're working within within certain systems is that's the focus of your goal setting. But I always bring it up to the students about things like that, the importance of doing, because when I give and I go back to the crocheting idea, because it's a really good point for me of learning an occupation later on in life is I say I could do all the fine motor skill activities I want. I could do fancy finger Fridays that you've downloaded activities off Pinterest till the cows come home. I could, you know, do 
finger strengthening exercises, you know, digital opposition type of activities. But when I pick up that crochet hook, I still don't know how to crochet. Stronger hands does not always allocate to better performance in an occupation, let's say. So it's, uh, I have to actually do the activity to learn how to do it. And I think that that just crosses many, you know, practice areas, um, you know, grocery shopping. I can do a fake grocery shopping list all I want, but until I take you to the grocery store and you have to wayfind and you have to budget out the money and you have to count it, you have to communicate with the teller. You have to look at the labels and see what's on sale and what's not on sale. You can only artificially make that as much as possible. And then you lose the motivation. Do you think, oh my goodness, do I have to sit in this room and fake budget and meal plan? Or can we actually do it? I've I've never run or seen or sat in a psychoeducation group that was like identical to what would actually happen in real life. No. Oh, so always, there's there's no point. We always think we're better at it too, right? Yeah. Like if you ask me, like about doing something that I'm not confident in, but I can talk through it, no problem at all. I'm gonna tell you, no, I'm confident. I'm safe at home, or I'm able to do this because in my mind, I really think I'm good at this because I just talked you through how I'm supposed to do it. When I'm put in that environment and I have to then do, uh oh. Maybe I'm not so good as I was at it, you know. And that's it's, like a lot of, especially with hospitals and stuff, a lot of fake environments. So, like, even I, I think I've done one in my life, but like shower assessments with someone, it's going to be very different doing it in the hospital shower to doing it at home in whatever sort of layout they've got at home, because you're never going to get a hospital shower that's not accessible. Yes. I know. And I think that, I mean, and I I appreciate the fact that at least we've moved to that space within a hospital setting to at least have a mock kitchen or Mm. have a washroom that you're able to do those things. And I think that that's a huge step. There's definite room for improvement in terms of thinking outside of the box of how we can then move even more forward or excuse me, forward farther. Um, But yes, I agree. There's always that sort of inkling in the back of your head about you know well is this really what happens at home and often it's through the conversation and the relationship that you develop with your client that you say what what do you need to do on your own I remember working as a student in um, general surgery like hip knee ortho and talking with many farm wives who had slipped and fell on ice um, especially in the winter time, and well, obviously in the winter time, and talking about how they were going to manage self care at home. And I don't know how many times all I they would sit there quietly and listen as you went through different equipment and dressing techniques, and you know, just very kind and probably thinking in their head, just shut up, Jesse, like just <laughs> shut up, you know, like stop talking, and. At the end, I would say, is that something that, you know, you, you would like to do on your own? And often they, a few, like a number of them would look at me and said, I've washed my husband's dirty underwear for the past 35 years. He can help me put on my bra or I'm not going to wear one. 
Because That's I also thought, fair. <laughs> I thought, you know, it's just so funny. It's not till you, you know, often have the conversation. Fair enough. You know, good point. I I remember, and I've told this story to a few students that I've had. I remember being, I worked, well, I was working on an acute mental health ward. And I had, I'm not sure, I can't remember exactly why, but I had another therapist from somewhere else that was shadowing me for the week. And I also had a student and I got a referral or I got asked by one of the nurses to do a shower assessment on this lady on the ward. Uh, and the therapist that was shadowing me was a female and she volunteered. She's like, oh, do you want me to do it? Because, you know, female, female might be a bit easier. I'm like, oh, you can do it. And my student asked if they could go. I'm like, all right. The therapist wasn't in the room. I'm like, all right, you can go and then you can come and tell me why that wasn't necessary. <laughs> and she looked, she was very confused, but she went. Two hours later, they came back. Uh, and the therapist gave me their, you know, rundown of what had happened. And she had made, I can't even remember, like some sort of visual prompts to stick on the wall to help her with showering and all of this stuff. And anyway, so she finished up, she left. I was talking to the student. I'm like, all right, so now you can tell me why that assessment wasn't necessary. You just spent two hours with that lady and you can tell me why I didn't think she needed to. Anyway, she came up with some things. I'm like, what made you think, because she'd been on the ward for a while. I'm like, what made you think she couldn't shower? Because she was refusing to shower, which is why the nurses were asked for the assessment. Oh, I see. So I'm like, what made you think she couldn't shower? Well, you know, she wasn't really sure. I'm like, we've seen her. I haven't seen her, but I've seen her go into her room and come out in different clothes. So I know that's not an issue. I've seen her tie her shoes. So I know mobility's not an issue. I've seen her walk. I've seen her transfer. I've seen all of this stuff and I haven't even really spoken to her yet. So I know that the basics of the mobility and the transfers and that kind of stuff. It's all there. The strength's there. She's physically, there shouldn't really be an issue aside from maybe if it's slippery, but that's going to be an issue for everyone. Right. We went and spoke to her. So they spent, <laughs> this was two hours later. I went and had a chat with her and it took five minutes to work out what was going on. So this lady was from out of town and her daughter would travel. She was about, I think it was about an hour and a half out of town. Her daughter would travel up and visit her sort of once a day or once once a day, once every couple of days. And her reasoning was that she was refusing to shower because her daughter would help her shower and then her daughter would spend time with her. And that was apparently the only sort of quality time that they would get. So all I had to do was talk to her about, well, if you shower your daughter's coming anyway, then you can spend all of that time doing something else. Done, yeah. fixed. And it was so, just a matter of having a conversation. Instead of going in there with a checklist on like, all right, we're going to see you shower and these are the things we're going to look at. And and I, I'm granted they those things are valid probably in some circumstances, but unless you've actually had the conversation, like I've worked with people, if they have trouble showering, they'll tell me in 99% of cases, especially working in mental yeah. health. Like, yeah. oh, I can't reach my back or I can't yeah. do this or I That's don't feel stable, I'm worried. Like, they'll just have the conversation. Mm -hmm. But the fact that you can see a lot of those sort of little bits and pieces that make up 
showering, a lot of the skills that you need to actually shower, you can see them just on observation on the ward. And that's one thing yeah. I've always taught or tried to, to, to show my students is that, like, I don't want to be rude about it, but you've just wasted two hours of that lady's time and you've put her in a really uncomfortable situation. Oh, I think that's fair. I think that's a really good point. When the observation yeah. could have been made and was made prior to that actually happening. And I think that even you saying that, Brock, even you saying that you have wasted her time, hmm. I think is insightful. And that you have placed her in an uncomfortable position. Because it's not about feeling valuable as a professional and checking off that you did a shower assessment. It's not about completing a standardized assessment when one doesn't need to be completed because you can do an interview and observe and interpret what is going on based on that. You're looking at what do you need to do for your client, not for you, for her. And I think that that is, you know, in and of itself, how you've said that in terms of you've wasted her time is a challenge for for some for some to really wrap their head around. Well, I didn't waste their time. I spent my time mm. with her for two hours, making sure she was safe and using my professional knowledge to be able to help her, to be able to enable her. Well, really? <laughs> did you? Did you? Is that, is that what really happened? I think you did. But I think that that's such a... Um, a very important point and I, I, that resonates on, on, you know, many different levels. And it's okay because I've wasted people's time. Oh, I've, I've done it countless times. I've only learned learning. It's like touch parking. I've just learned by mistake. Yeah, and, and that's okay. That's how we grow into it. It's recognizing that I just wasted that person's time or I made that mistake is what truly makes a great therapist. Yeah, and, and I, I, guess, I guess what I – aim to do now is to help others learn by my mistakes so they learn a little bit faster and don't you know one of the things that i'm very have been very cautious of for a few years now is joe uh, an ot from up this way joe sharing introduced me to the concept that i'd never even considered before of the therapy actually causing a trauma mm. And doing unnecessary things and putting people in situations that are really uncomfortable or embarrassing or uh, demeaning or even the fact that in a hospital anyway, you might have four or five professions come in in a day and ask that person exactly the same questions. I mean, I, I know from my point of view, if that was happening to me and touch wood, it hasn't. By the last person, they'd probably be getting very short to no answers and I'd be getting, you know, non-compliant yeah. written on my chart or something. I, I don't know. know. <laughs> I know. I know. I, I would agree. I would agree. It's, uh, yeah, it's uh, a real thought of the humanness, but in our profession, I think, and, and I think that many you know, we, we need to be aware of that. We need to be aware of that. We're working with people, with people, not for people, you know, not for people because people are able to advocate for themselves. You know, they're mm. on most occasions, you know, they're able to do that. We're working with human beings whom we're connected to as part of 
the profession as part of this universe that we reside in that, you know, we, we need to be respectful of that. And it's a good point. The, the, why am I doing this? Why is it important? How am I helping versus actually possibly making it worse? Am I needed? Is there somebody else that's the better big fit question. for this situation? You know, am I? Is there somebody that's a better fit right now for this person versus me? You know, and those questions need to be asked. But in order to do that, you need to be confident with who you are and and what you bring to the table and what you know. You're okay with taking a back seat at certain times and then taking the drive. You know, being in the passenger seat or being, you know, in the driver's seat at times, depending on what your role is within that situation. But yeah, it's a, it's an interesting. And I think what you've just hit on there is it's a pet peeve of mine, but OTs aren't very good at knowing when we are needed. (laughs) We have this, we seem to have this sort of mindset that everyone can benefit from an OT and I disagree. <laughs> I think that there are people that, because a lot of the stuff we do is to to an outsider may seem like common sense, like grading activities and that kind of stuff for most people is common sense. And you'll talk to some people that go, yeah, I've been doing that for years. Like mm. someone that you work with be like, oh, you know, I, you know, couldn't get my shoe on, so I went to the shop and I bought a shoe horn or something like that. Like, it could be anything. Like they, Most people can work out a lot of the stuff that we might do with people on their own. But we yeah. seem to think that I, I don't think we give people enough credit for their resilience and for their their prior knowledge and their, you know, they're smart people. People are smart. And oh, that's, yeah. that's one of the things that was – really sort of drilled into us working in mental health is that well, especially in the last team that I was in was the fact that we as health professionals not just as OTs will often look at people as you know oh poor them they're unwell I don't know like I couldn't do that um, mm. with almost I guess sympathetic viewpoint where in reality the fact that someone has gone through something like I've worked with a I worked with a guy who'd been in the mental health system for thirty something years. Yeah. The fact that he has been able to do that is amazing on its own. Let yeah. alone do that with all of his symptoms and getting unwell and not being able to find a good medication for him and not being able to lead the life that this dude really really wanted to do, like we wanted to lead. Yeah. But we don't give people enough credit for their resilience in getting where they are like yeah there's people that you got out of bed that's awesome like if if that's something you've been struggling with then you know that's awesome that's something we need to celebrate like you actually got out of bed whereas some people look at that it's like you sat on the couch all day what's wrong with you yeah the small successes and i think I think mean, that's a perfect way. There's nothing better that I that I loved working in pediatrics than um, affirming, I guess, to families how connected they were and how strong they were, and to tell parents, you know, that needed to be told because they don't see it how creative they are, how insightful they are, the things that they have done for their child. Um, 
And whether it's through advocating for services, whether it's through creating spaces within their home for their child to be able to engage in family routines and all on their own, Mm. like parents that have built things that have created things to, you know, allow their child to watch a movie at night with the rest of the family because they're in a chair that doesn't fit downstairs. The things that, you know play spaces that they have created, toys they have adapted, you know, schools that they have gone to and advocated for their child's learning needs. Like, I think, you know, wow, Mm. like I've learned more from you than what you'll ever get from me, you know, in, in those spaces. And that realization that, you know, parents go, well, that's no big deal. I'm just being a parent or I'm just being a caregiver. No, 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 no. Like, that's, that's amazing that's something like, else yeah something to be incredibly proud of and i think as therapists we need to draw on that from our clients from their families from their caregivers from those around us mm. to learn and to grow um and to see that not only to give you know well-deserved praise and, you know, affirmation, I guess, when it's due, but also as adding to our, so to speak, OT toolbox in terms of thinking about those instances when we see another client and they're struggling with something related to something similar to what a family had created. That's something that we would never learn through a textbook. That's something we'd never learn you know, through a journal article or something like that. It's something that we learn in practice through the relationships that we build with our clients and their families. I mean, it's incredible. But Yeah, yeah. and I think also, I think I remember last semester talking to students about, I think it was about how we, oh, it was about thinking like an OT. Uh, and it was talking about like where we get information from. And it, mm-hmm. like it was talking about charts and it was talking about assessments yeah. and it was talking about that. And I'm like, oh, and one of the thing was, oh, I can't remember the exact wording, but essentially it was like your prior knowledge. But it didn't really go into that. Like to me, that's almost one of the biggest ones because I'm like, I've learnt more from engaging with people than I ever did at uni you know, from a textbook, in all the readings, in all the research, in all the trainings that I've done since I graduated, like, I have learned more the, from engaging with humans and exploring their narratives than yeah. I ever will or ever have and probably ever will from any course or book or journal article or anything like that. And that was one of the big reasons why I started this podcast was... yeah. One, I like technology, and two, I I learn through exploring narrative. So one of my sort of main goals was to get people like you in here and we'll just talk. We'll explore yeah. a narrative and I learn off you and maybe you'll learn something yeah. off me and that's yeah. someone that's listening might learn something off both of us and that's how we grow. That's how we become better therapists. That's how we get new ideas. That's how some of our current ideas are challenged. It makes us think. It makes us go, oh, well, maybe I should go back and have a read of this or maybe I should look up that idea. Like, 
we need to be challenged. I think a lot of therapy, and it's, it doesn't happen as much nowadays, I don't feel, but when I first graduated, there was a lot of therapists that had been doing the same thing for 30 years. So the big thing when I very first graduated was you just had to kind of fall into line and you learnt how they did things and that's how you did them. Yeah. And me, because I'm stubborn and I like to I, – I get bored easily, went, well, no, this doesn't sound right. Let's see if there's other things that we can do. And originally yeah. it was just finding more ways to do the same thing because, well, like I said, I get bored easily. But then it was like yeah. – when I started looking into things, it was like, there's a whole other way to do this and we're probably doing it the wrong way. So, yeah, And that's yeah. how we grow. Like we challenge the ideas that we've got and we develop on them or we get new ones and we integrate them. And that's – I don't think that's given enough credit when it comes to working or engaging with the people that we work with because you'll learn massively. They will change your life. Yeah, they will. They will, and I think that you – well, I know that I do, and I, I say that a lot to my students as well, and it might be my personality, and it probably is, is that engaging with others and with people fills my cup up. Like, I feel energized through that experience. Like, I feel um, thankful for that opportunity, whether that's with my clients that I work with, whether that's through students that challenge me and ask me questions and we have a discussion about it or share their placement experiences, you know, or whether it's through colleagues academically, you know, that challenge me to make me think beyond what I might, you know, normally think of a research, you know, approach or a methodology or a way of doing or a new um, intervention that's just been sort of starting to be looked at. You know, like I think that that connection to people is the best part, is the best part. Like I can't think of anything better that has made me a better person, a better OT a better researcher than connecting with people. I, I honestly, I think that that's the core of, uh, of everything that, that we do. And I think it's important. I, I, I look forward for students to come back from placement and find that connection or sample that, you know, that aha moment of the value of people and what they do and how they belong in the world. And I think that that is, um, one of those things I get excited about debriefing from placement, looking for those, you know, moments. Mm. Where I, oh, I met this client or my preceptor was really good at, you know, making me expand my knowledge around a particular topic area or this client story resonated with me and we had such a wonderful discussion and, you know, it led towards goal setting around, you know, looking into things that we never thought were possibilities before or, you know, we're so occupationally focused or, yeah, I think those are exciting moments that, you know, make you feel. I, I can 100% relate to that because I am – Always the first one to admit that I was a terrible student. Uh, <laughs> I just, I did, I never really, I, I didn't get it. It didn't click. I couldn't relate to it until I went on placement and I came back from placement a completely different person. Uh, and I've had that confirmed by one of my old lecturers before <laughs> as well. But uh, I mean, I knew it. Uh, I was under no delusion that I was yeah. some sort of amazing student or something, but. <laughs> 
yeah, like placement was where placement and connecting with the people and then being able to apply some of the things that we'd actually learnt in the classroom was that was probably would be the one of the most defining moments of my professional career because all of a sudden I went on placement not having a clue really. I, could, I wouldn't have been able to, I don't think I would have been able to give you a good definition of what an OT is or what an OT does. And I came back wanting to tell everyone what an OT is and what an OT does. Like it all just clicked. Yeah. And yeah. I think back now and I, in hindsight, I'm like, man, the stuff you were actually doing on placement and even once I graduated for the first couple of years, I'm like, that was, you know, some of it was quite reductionist. Some of it was yeah, just, you know, functional assessments for the sake of functional assessments, which I would never do anymore. But it was a big step forward for me in actually understanding this massive thing, this occupation, this huge concept that right. I just hadn't really clicked prior to being able to do it, funnily enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. No, I I agree, I agree. So your PhD was, it wasn't with kids though, was it, was it with young adults? Well, it was at, at young adults, yeah. So between the ages of 16 to 21, uh, it ended up being all young men uh, who uh, were diagnosed as having um, ASC at the time. It was still the diagnosis of Asperger's. So um, between 16 and 21 with a diagnosis who are really ideally looking at um, developing life skills for their transition to adulthood. So they were in that preparation phase of, okay, we don't have services or we haven't had services for a very long time. So they were in the community or? Yeah. So they were out in the community, like just young guys at high school mm -hmm. um, who maybe had services when they were younger in terms of maybe early intervention services around social skills and behaviors because their IQ was at or well above average IQ they didn't have any other services, especially through school health services. So basically, it didn't have the skills, though, to live independently in the community. So they were living in their parents' basements, or they had goals of perhaps uh, getting into college or university, getting girlfriends, you know, being able to even make a snack for themselves when they got home from school. So just realizing their dependence on their moms or their dads or their caregivers was at an all-time high. And if they that reality check sort of hit that I want to be a young guy living on his own, I want these opportunities, but I don't really know how to go about doing this. Um, and parents being unsure of how to help support through that next stage of transition. Mm-hmm. And the idea really came about wasn't I wasn't really um, working with a lot of individuals who had a diagnosis of of autism. It was actually a good friend of mine, Katie, who did her PhD at the same time as me, who was well connected with Autism Ontario, who was actually sort of a respite worker for many families who had um, young kids who were diagnosed. I was in more the developmental coordination disorder, motor learning side of things, but um, 
the opportunity arose and I thought working in school health services at the time before going back to do my PhD, this huge gap, especially when I got referrals for high school um, youth, you know, what do we do in OT for these young men and women who we get in high school who might have, you know, an intellectual disability, might have autism, might have, you know, you know, where do we fit? Mm. Because yep. many of the recommendations around goal setting that we had to do within school health services context were around visual motor skills, visual perceptual skills, accessing the curriculum through assistive technology, but not at the heart of occupation. You know, like there's so many things, you know, with your conversation with Simone that we could have worked on. And the time I was very lucky, the developmental delay classroom teacher was very occupation focused. Like she had them doing their laundry. She had them running a breakfast club. And she, she wasn't them. an OT, was she? She wasn't. And she was just amazing. And, you know, we would have the most wonderful conversations, you know, and she was just a star and she swam against the stream you know many people you know you should be teaching them curriculum and you should be teaching them maths and science and she's like well no 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 they need to count money they need to be able to put a meal together they need to learn kitchen safety and community safety and they need to learn you know like we want them well equipped for graduation but because of our focus on services being so front loaded in terms of early intervention these young people sort of just this youth just dropped off the radar and yeah. then you're sitting there as an OT thinking well there's so much I could do but what am I actually going to do so that's where this project kind of came about and um working with these young these young men and the the call out for participants was the feedback from that was just astounding we still get calls to the university over that program from oh, autism wow. Ontario. like the feedback from the community around the need for this program was unparalleled like we had no problem recruiting we had to turn so many people away because it's me and Katie yeah. <laughs> creating this camp program for these young people and we did it during the summer partially for respite for parents yep. you know like as a bit of a break you know to be able to give their kids an opportunity at the same time take some time for themselves go to you know be able to go to work without having to worry about the kids at home by themselves or things like that so it was a it was definitely a win-win situation um for, for that reason. And we got a wonderful group of young men who, you know, after the camp, uh, wanted to be almost camp counselors. Like if that's not the greatest opportunity, if they want to come back, if they tell me and Katie that we would love to help out other people like us, friends that we could help support. That's no pretty greater, amazing. No greater reward for me. I don't care if they went up on the COPM or the movement ABC or the Vineland. I mean, the fact that they wanted to come back, that's a win. You know, is the fact that Autism Ontario contacted us to create a shortened version of the program for them to use in a March break camp. Mm -hmm. Bab, you find it valuable enough to actually implement it as part of your day-to-day -day programming. Yeah. Wonderful. Like, it was obviously a shortened down version, somewhat 
altered because it was a research study that we were doing. Yeah, but yeah. yet flavor of it was just so OT and so occupationally. It was it was a wonderful project. Every day was fun to go. You know, like <laughs> I can't imagine For a research well. project being fun. Every day you go there and get to hang out with a bunch of young guys that, you know, just want to learn. We had a drum. We well, we tried to because it was at the university, the the space that we didn't have to pay for, right? So of course, with budgeting and costs of running a research study, we had to create a space they felt comfortable in. So that was the first conversation: was what do you want this space to look like? You have to make it your own. So they brought in their drum kits, they brought in their guitars, they brought in, you know, beanbag chairs, they brought in all that stuff that. That's you awesome. know, with Playstations or whatever other, you know, Xboxes and things like that in order to play games. The only rule was you had to be more than a single player game, you know, like things like that. Was, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it was, um, yeah, it was, it was a great project. It was, it was a great one to, to do. And I felt very lucky to have Katie along too for it, who is an OT as well and still is an OT practicing in school health services and is still you know, doing some research at, at Western and to do it with a good friend, you know, to have a bit of a go with a intervention yeah. for the first time is pretty awesome for, yeah. So what, what, what was the actual project? What, what did you actually do say on the, on the day to day kind of stuff with them? Uh, so the project was really looking around, um, utilizing the cognitive orientation to daily occupational performance, the co-op approach, um, which is a metacognitive intervention that was used, um, originally with children with developmental coordination disorder between the ages of sort of seven to 14, um, looking at developing occupational performance and meaningful identified self-chosen goals. So I was using um, the co-op approach in conjunction with concept mapping uh, to be able to facilitate uh, these youth, these young men to develop plans on how they were going to solve um, these occupational challenges that they were having. And the reason that we implemented the use of iPads and concept mapping was the fact that co-op is a very uh, verbally based framework. So you talk through your goal, your plan, how you're going to do, then you do the activity and then you check. That's the global problem solving strategy. And then there's domain specific cognitive strategies that are sort of embedded within that. Things that the young, the youth decide that could be prompts to help them achieve their goal. They're sort of facilitators that are dependent on the person as well as the context that they're performing the activity or the task in. So because individuals with autism struggle with social communication and often describing, many of them said, what's happening in my head is hard to be able to articulate, like to say aloud, mm -hmm. used iPads and concept mapping. Um, to be able for them to show me how they were going to achieve their goal, like how they're, uh, how they're making their plan. And it actually worked really well because then they could use that concept map visually to actually do their plan, whether that was making soup or, you know, 
connecting with a friend and the iPads they connected really well with because of sort of an affinity towards an enjoyment of technology. They could take pictures, they could audio record their voice telling them what they were going to do or how they were going to do it. And it allowed them then the medium through which to air check what was going well and what was not. Because that's one of the key components of co-op is they have to be able to air check. Right. What I do well, what didn't work so well, and how am I going to change my plan in order to hopefully ensure that this will happen better the next time? Like a little reflective loop. Exactly. And they have to have that ability to reflect, which is challenging sometimes for an individual with autism, because often it could be everybody else's fault, not my own, of why this isn't working. So it's very good with co-op too. really emphasizes it's not personal failure. And that was important, especially when it originated with kids with developmental coordination disorder, because if a kid constantly fails at a motor plan over and over again, it becomes their fault, their decreased motivation, you know, low self-efficacy, withdrawal, negative behavior, social isolation, blah, 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 blah. And the list goes on. So it's a fact it's not your fault. It's not working. The plan just didn't work out. So let's change the plan. And then it might work better the next time. So Sylvia Roger, who everybody there in Australia knows and knows and loves and misses um, a lot, was one of the first sort of researchers to take the co-op approach to the field of autism and started looking at there might be potentially other domain specific strategies that kids with autism use, but also that co-op could be a really useful approach for children with autism. So she was, was she looking at it more around the age group that it was designed for, like the younger well, age group? She did, she did look a little bit around that as well as around the more motor skill type of okay. stuff, like dressing, brushing your hair, brushing your teeth, cutting, making a sandwich, that kind of stuff. But she also branched out um, in a bit more of the adolescent range, like youth range around social and organizational skills. Okay. Uh, so around um, connecting on the playground, um, organizing um, your homework, you know, in terms of more of the time management type of stuff as well, which was one of the first sort of branches out into those social organizational skills. Mm -hmm. So basically, um, with these young um, men with autism, we worked it in a group style. So traditionally, co-op has been in a one-on-one intervention approach. As part of a project I did in sort of my master's, like, like in occupational therapy, when I was doing my clinical master's degree, I had said to Angie uh, Mandich, who is part of the develop, who's a developer of the co-op with with Helen Politanko, is I wonder if it would be good in groups because people learn from each other, right? They model each other, they look at each other, and especially when you have kids that aren't really good at stuff, like plenty of developmental theories that look at that. You're right. So we started looking at that, and I thought, well, let's do the same thing, especially because many of the young men. Their goals were around social skills. Well, you need to do the social skills. We can't just talk about social skills. We need to. So how are we going to do them? Hmm. Let's do them in a group. We're not going to sit and talk about, you know, necessarily our feelings and what makes a good friend and a safe friend. We're going to let them create an environment in which they can 
do things together, play music, play video games, let conflict happen and try to problem solve through the conflict because that's the same conflict they're going to have with their friends at school or, you know, doing those sorts of things. So that's, that's where the group side. So it ran every day for four weeks and we did lots of community activities as well. So part of it was around, let's say, using public transit, if that was one of the goals. Well, okay, well, we have a bit of cash. What we'll do is we'll go to, I don't know, the YMCA and go swimming or go to laser tag, whatever they wanted to do, bowling. They, they chose the activity, but we got to get there. How are we going to get there? So then it was about, you know, drawing on each other's strengths. There was one young guy that was part of the group that was absolutely amazing at bus transit systems, but he was really poor at working collectively with a team and not being a bit of a bossy pants and telling everybody what to do and how to do it. So how do we, we let him take control of the bus systems, but we also then work on the social skills around making and keeping friends and communication and working together collaboratively but we actually go bowling. We don't just talk about it. We get on the bus and we miss the bus and we have to run for the bus and we have to communicate with the bus driver about change and how much it costs and doing all those other things, those life skill things to be able to take the bus to go bowling. And then when we're bowling, lo and behold, you don't get the score you want and your friend gets a better score. How do you cope with that? You know, like all of those sorts of things. So, oh, yeah, I need to was, learn that lesson myself, I think. Oh, I do too. I do too. I lose to my children all the time and I need the bumpers up. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it was, it was such a great opportunity and a, and a great experience. And the other part of it too is we had, because it was a feasibility study. So we were looking at, does this actually have potential? How do we recruit for this? Because we were actually developing, Katie and I, the day-to-day stuff we did. So coming in in the morning, oh, lo and behold, it's 9 o'clock and a bunch of teenage men, like boys, I guess, youth, don't want to really wake up and be on their summer vacay at 8, 39 o'clock. So we got to give them time to sort of get themselves organized, get sorted before we start the project, you know, like all those little things. Um, how much time do we work on co-op in terms of planning? How do we provide individual support in a group format? How much do groceries cost for 10 young men to cook meals? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like a lot. <laughs> you know, what activities do we need to get to? How did the iPads work? How do we negotiate taking the iPads home? and responsibility in bringing them back because we want transfer and generalization with co-ops. So we want them to take their plans home and enact them. But also one of the big things was how do we get feedback from these young men about what's working well and what's not. Often you get a lot of what's not working well sometimes, you know, but reflection. And a lot of people said you'll never get anything in terms of reflective diary from a bunch of adolescent men with you know, ASD, you're not going to get anything. Well, at first it was challenging. It was very listy, listy. I like this. I didn't like this. I like this. I didn't like this. The language changed 
by the end, you know, of the four weeks where from I, it went to we, we did this today. We as a group versus I like this. I liked geocaching. I didn't like tomato soup, you know, versus we missed the bus today and we had to run. It was so funny when so-and-so dropped the bowling ball on the app. Like it became a conversation of we versus I, yep. which I think was just a, an incredible revelation, yeah. you That's know? Amazing. And, um, yeah, there was lots of positive feedback. I mean, scores were good parents feedback and caregivers and the young men who participated, like I said, wanted to come back, which I think is one of those, the ultimate, you know, um, affirmation that things were, were good. Yeah. 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 Because I remember, and that's essentially how we met, was I sat in on your conference presentation <laughs> in Melbourne like a week yeah. after you've got to the country, apparently. I know. I know. I had three presentations. I felt very popular in Australia. I'm very, uh, very honored. Yeah. And I heard you present, and it wouldn't. I don't, it must have been an occupational science. It was a different stream. It wasn't like a pediatric stream because I think, yeah, yeah, because I wouldn't have been in a pediatric stream. Uh, and I heard it, and I'm like, I have to find this person and talk to them because that was brilliant. <laughs> and then when I ran into you, you were with one of my old lecturers. <laughs> I know it's funny because yeah, the opportunity came and I remember it was, that was a, such a great conference. I got to meet so many people in Australia, you know, just shortly after arriving there because moving to Australia just after completing my PhD was amazing. I mean, in terms of the conference, so lucky to present at the national conference and meet so many people. I knew I had knew of Sylvia Roger prior because she had worked quite closely with my supervisor for my PhD, but to meet her in person, person. you know, as the sort of organizer of my stream was one of those dumbfounding (laughs) moments, you know, and then her going, Oh, we'll do a co-op workshop together. And then, you know, connecting over Skype after that and me sort of sitting there like with my jaw, like, Oh, like, like a total, (laughs) yeah, couldn't even form words. I don't think, you know, in that sort of starstruck awe of um, her presence, but yeah, uh, it was a great conference and yeah, we got to meet there and then, you know, sort of continued keeping in touch after that point because of working, you know, up in uh, Townsville and, (laughs) you know, and then, yeah, it was, uh, it was a great sort of first meeting. And I was, I was honored that you thought that the presentation had some, had some merit. Sometimes you throw things out there in terms of uh, what you've done and you, you hope people think it's as cool as you, but sometimes, you know, you get probably overly excited and think, you know, nobody else is going to, <laughs> nobody else is going to think of this was any sort of valid or uh, important work, but uh, yeah. And, that, and that's what I think, That's that tends to be what I do at conferences is I'll listen to a lot of things and, you know, listening to presentations is great. They're usually only five, ten minutes, like they're usually really short, so you're not going to get a huge amount of information, but when you do find something that 
you're curious about or you want to know more about or even like for yours, it was I just wanted to say, G'day, that was awesome. Like it, <laughs> I, it connected with me on, uh, I guess, our, the ideas around occupation and that sort of thing connected well with me. Uh, and I, that, that's what I that's how that's the benefits I get out of going to conferences. It's not sitting through presentations. It's then meeting the people and getting into more in-depth discussions yeah. about the concepts that they're bringing to the table and how they fit with you know your your schemas already and that kind of thing. So I think that's that's again it's the connection and the the meeting people that is the benefit of. Those sort of events. There's other events. I know in Queensland we used to run symposias, which were different to the conferences in that they were usually like two-hour kind of workshop presentations. That's a bit different where the benefit in that is generally what's actually presented. But at a conference where, you know, over a three-day national conference, I might sit through 70 or 80 presentations. Right, because they're those elevator talks now. It's become very, you know, quick, quick, quick. And as a presenter, it's a real challenge. It's a real challenge to condense your work or what you're passionate about into like five to ten minutes. Mm, especially a PhD where you've spent how many years doing it? I know four years of your life <laughs> devoted to this project. And you think that after, but it is, it's that igniting the potential relationships or contacts from that conversation that you can dive into more of the the narrative to use your words around the around the project and around the outcomes and potential future you know collaborations moving moving forward Hmm. and I I take a lot of pride in the fact that my research and Katie and I've had this conversation as uh, colleagues many times is is applied you Hmm. know is clinical I graduated from the field of occupational science in my PhD. Yep. You know, but I feel my project and and people might argue because it is very intervention based and, and very focused on clinical like applicability and context and, but it's occupation. Mm. And I, I don't, I just think that that's such a, a real wonderful thing about being, I I still consider myself a clinical researcher. I'm not a peer researcher, even though I hold, you know, an assistant professor position is that it's, I can never get rid of that. And I'm not, I'm not embarrassed by that. You know, I'm not shy to say that I'm an OT first and a researcher second and everything I do in terms of research is informed by my clinical lens and from Will this be useful for the people with whom I'm connecting with? I want somebody to look at what I do if it is research and say, I could use that in my clinical practice. That will advance what I'm doing. This changes the way in which practice actually happens because that's that's why I came back to do my PhD. As I say that is is that I wanted to change what I was forced to do as a school health therapist or as a clinic-based therapist. I wanted to change the face of what was possible as an OT. And I feel that you can do that through two ways, through research and through teaching, teaching students who are at the front lines of what they shape the profession. My research is good. Is like, I like it. And I think I want to get better at it for sure. 
But at the end of the day, it's the students that I teach and that graduate that carry occupation at the core of what they do that change the practice immediately. Not in, you know, three years by the time my publication goes through revisions and yeah, yeah. full revisions and I want <laughs> you to change that reference and I want you to add this in. It's those students that go out there. And I felt like that in Australia. I felt like that with the fourth years when they graduated. I was proud of them. I was proud to see them step forward and take on the new face of what OT is and will be and continue to develop the practice and come back and teach me about what some of the things they're doing in practice and and in the clinical space. I think that's that's such a rewarding opportunity to be a clinical researcher um, like that. And and Australia offered that opportunity and it was just, um, yeah, wonderful, wonderful. Can't follow that. <laughs> How am I meant to follow that? No, it's true. It's true. So when you're frustrated marking your grading papers, think about it. <laughs> I will. I will. Yeah, it's good at the end. It was wonderful chatting, and I think we talked about well, mishmash and stuff. So I'm sorry. I just kind of started talking without much direction. That's the way these things should happen, as you well know. I know my husband says I could I could easily fill a three hour class and nobody else would get a word in edgewise. So I believe that. <laughs> I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I'm just thinking: is there somewhere, say, if someone wanted to look up more information about co-op, or is it mainly just in papers? Yeah, there's there's a lot of papers um, around co-op. So even if in your sort of your Google Scholar search or your database search, if you put in the cognitive orientation to daily occupational performance, but there is a co-op academy, which is where sort of the instructors and the trainers and some current literature, because it's sort of worldwide, there's people within Australia, Sylvia's um, unfortunately passed, but Elspeth Frude is someone as another as the head of Australian Catholic University. Um, she's a big co-op researcher in Australia, specifically around children with um, CP and co-op. But the Co-op Academy, if you type that in, it's from the University of Toronto because Helen Politanko, who is the founder of Co-op with Dr. Angie Mandich from Western, they have an academy as well and have some current resources and they've just published as well. I think it's, um, well, Helen is one of the authors on it as well, um, a new co-op book actually. And there's a co-op manual that's available as well through the Canadian Association of Occupational Therapists. Uh, you can go on their website and type in co-op and the manual will come up, which is sort of the exactly what you do, the theoretical foundations, some suggestions on um, all the key key features of the approach and and there's often OT Australia often runs co-op workshops and stuff too for therapists who are interested in you know additional training and stuff like that around it so awesome. if it's of interest mm-hmm. so much information yeah yeah well thanks so much for the opportunity and pleasure has been mine as always <laughs> at any time you're up for another chat I'm happy to do it I'm always up for another chat, recorded or otherwise. Yeah, I I think it's I think it's a great forum, and I think um, well, like I said to you before, I'll be using it with my students, and I actually recommended um, 
some of the podcasts already to some of the uh, clinicians whom I'm connected with in uh, Canada. So you'll be a hit. Well, you already are a hit, but you'll be an even bigger hit here in Canada. So I just hope that someone, if they get something out of it, that's that's all I can hope for. I'm for me, it's a hobby. It's fun. I'm enjoying it. Yeah, and I get to talk to people, and Yay. we all know how much I love to talk. Yeah. So, especially about occupation and all that kind of thing. I would yeah. talk about that for days. Yeah. Crown people in my words, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's 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 fun. I'm really enjoying it. Great. So, anytime you want to come back, we will tee that up. Perfect. Sounds good. All right. Well, take care, ladies and gentlemen. Doctor Jesse Wilson. <laughs>